0: It is certainly great to be back with you this morning, I hope everyone's day is off to a great start. Today we're going to be back in Acts 2 for our third week, but we will be finishing the chapter this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 42 through 47, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there now. These verses are going to show us what characterized life in the early church, uh, and we're going to ta- learn that there are four practices that must characterize a Holy Spirit-empowered church today. But first, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever done something zealously and thought that you were doing the right thing for the right reasons, only to come to find out that it was all wrong, and not just wrong, but terribly wrong, maybe seriously wrong, and you were deeply convicted, you felt terrible guilt and hopeless. But then, maybe even unexpectedly, you were forgiven and got to experience the joy of that forgiveness. Those moments can take you from the lowest of lows, right, to the, to the highest of highs. So, recently, Natalia has gotten me hooked on Korean dramas or K-dramas. If you know, you know. And uh, I was very skeptical at first... And I'm not even a drama guy, but they're clean, they're catchy, they have great storylines, and right now we're watching one called A Daily Dose of Sunshine, and it's about a nurse who works at a hospital, and there's another doctor at this hospital who has feelings for her, but here's the drama, the boy next door that grew up next to her whole life, who she thinks is like her brother, also has feelings for her, you know, I can't wait to find out what's going to (laughs) happen. But at one point in the show, a patient at the hospital dies, and it causes the nurse to go into a deep, deep depression. And the mother of the nurse, in her desperation, asks the guy next door to please help her daughter, take her outside, take her for a walk, get her some fresh air. And so he goes over, and she rejects all of his attempts to get her to go on a walk. So finally, he wraps her in her comforter and carries her out into the street. And from there, it all goes terribly wrong, and he's left standing alone in the street, Later on, he's talking to another friend who's a doctor and says, hey, my friend is struggling with this. What do I do to help her? And he comes to find out that everything he did in his good intentions were absolutely the wrong thing to do and may have made her depression worse. Now, remember, he has feelings for her and in his desire to help, he hurt her. I told you these shows are good. Can you feel his anguish and his guilt? He feels like everything is his fault. But when she starts to come out of heel and come out of this depression, he goes to visit her and he is profusely apologizing. And she smiles and says that she's thankful for him and that she knows that he did what he did because he cares for her and she forgives him. In that moment, he jumps out of his seat at the joy of her forgiveness. He seemed like the happiest person in the world. He was experiencing, right, the joy of freedom and, uh, and her forgiveness. He had been released from the guilt and the anguish and the joy is overflowing. Even more so, right, because he has feelings for her. But at the end of the last episode we watched, she was holding hands with the other doctor. I know. I know. I told you these shows are good. I know. I'll fill you in on what's going to happen. You may be wondering how this has anything to do with life in the early church, but just Wait, before we can get to verses 42 and 47, I want us to step back briefly to 36 through 41. I want us to see something that will help us to have a better understanding of what we're going to look at in 42 through 47. So let's start with 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. We read this last week when Pastor Dusty was preaching on this passage. This is near the end of Peter's first sermon at Pentecost. and He brings this sermon to a close with a piercing, an eye-opening accusation. He's saying that the Jews, when they crucified Jesus, had literally killed their Lord and Christ, meaning they killed their master and long-awaited Messiah. But they did this out of a zeal for God and a desire for the glory of God, thinking that Jesus was blaspheming God. In in Luke 22, after Jesus is arrested, he's brought before the the council and the chief priests and the scribes, and they ask, are you the Son of God? And he responds, you say that I am. And what do they respond? They say, you, what further um, testimony do we need? We have heard it from his own lips. He's blaspheming, unless what he says is true. Even the Apostle Paul, who at this time in history is called Saul, he was a Pharisee and was persecuting Christians. He said he did this because he was zealous for God. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, who is a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, we'll get to him. But he was one of the first deacons in the church. He was stoned to death for his faith in Jesus and preaching Christ in the the temple. And after Stephen is stoned, we read verse verse 1 of chapter 8 and Saul is standing there approving his execution. So here the Jews, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, uh, think that Jesus is lying and blaspheming God, so they think they are honoring God by crucifying him. They thought they were doing the right thing by God, but actually were crucifying the Son of God. Their hearts were blinded to the truth of who Jesus was. And now back here in chapter 2 of Acts, Peter, showing them how all scripture points to Christ and finds their fulfillment in Christ, makes it plain to them. This Jesus you crucified is truly the Lord and Christ. When the realization of this hits them, how do you think they felt? You can put any other example in here of someone doing something they thought was right for good reasons, but it was actually wrong and it wouldn't hold a candle to this. If you were there and realized that you were mistaken about who Christ was, you would respond just as they did in verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They had just received a hopeless blow from Peter. And as the realization of who Jesus was sets in, so does their desperation. But we cannot forget verse 23 Of chapter 2. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The cross of Christ was all part of God's plan for the salvation of sinners, even sinners who crucified Jesus. Sinners like you and me, whose sin held Jesus to the cross until payment. Was made. First Peter two says he. This is Jesus. Uh, bore himself, himself. bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Listen to Peter's response to their desperation. Verse thirty eight. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The grace of God through Christ extends even to those who crucified Jesus. And in reality, we are no better. In a moment, they went from the lowest point you could go to the unbridled joy and hope at the offer of forgiveness extended to them through repentance and faith in Christ. And then look at the response in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the response of people who are not just aware of their sin, but also acutely aware of how sin leads to death. This is the response of a people who have been confronted with their brokenness and the sheer hopelessness of their state before a holy and righteous God. Yet this is also the response of a people who have tasted and experienced the complete unmerited favor of the grace of God in Christ Jesus in that moment. There's a spirit-fueled, overflowing joy and love for God and his glory. In that moment, they saw what they were saved from and what they were saved for. Can you imagine the joy of those 3,000 people in that moment? I crucified Christ. I am forgiven by Christ. That's unbelievable. So that's the backdrop uh, that sets the stage for verse 42 and 47, titled The Fellowship of Believers. This church was made up of brothers and sisters in Christ who were fueled by the reign of the Holy Spirit in their lives, a complete satisfaction in Christ, coupled with an overwhelming experience of the joy of their salvation. We need to ask ourselves, does this type of uh, faith and joy characterize us today? an overwhelming joy at the joy of our salvation. So Acts 42 through 47 is a natural overflow of a people who are captured by the grace of God in Christ. This is what a church satisfied with and in love with Jesus will look like and be characterized by. So would you stay with me as I read verses 42 through 47? And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. You may be seated. All right, we, we're going to examine four practices that characterize the early church. And these practices are a continual devotion to the apostles' teaching, continual devotion to the fellowship, continual devotion to worship, and the overflow of the devotion to God, evangelism. So that's where we're going to go this morning. But before we get there and and look at practice one, I want to make one point about the apostles here. Imagine Peter, being Peter, and after your first sermon, 3,000 people come to faith. Not, Not bad. I've never had that happen, right? They give their lives to Christ. This must have been incredibly exciting for Peter, right? He witnessed the display of the power of the Holy Spirit through God's word through him. But you have to imagine also there's rising up at that same moment an overwhelming sense of responsibility for the care and development of these new believers. He he may have been thinking, Lord, this is great. Uh, Where do I begin? What am I going to do? What's the next step, right? Well, fortunately for Peter and the other apostles, they now have the Holy Spirit. And the responsibilities that lay ahead of them, they would look to the Spirit for guidance. And by the Spirit's power and God's grace, Things are going to fall into place. So let's look at practice number one, continual devotion to the apostles' teaching. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now it's important to note right off the bat here that this verse literally says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is important because this is not this devotion just wasn't short and a temporary time of devotion to the apostles teaching as the church was beginning this was a steadfast single minded devotion of the 3000 over time they were committed to knowing Jesus this practice of continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching is listed first here because when you do it is the, the practice that guides and directs Every other practice, if you're not staying connected to God's word, these other practices aren't going to matter very much. or They're not going to be successful. In a church where the Spirit of God reigns, continual devotion to God's Word is essential. I was talking to a woman in our church the other day about dancing. Not me dancing. No one wants to see that. But she runs a dance school. And I asked, how hard is it to memorize choreography for multiple dances in a show that you do? I said, I don't think I could ever remember all the moves unless I did them thousands of times. And she responded, they do do them thousands of times. I said, oh. So how do dancers memorize their choreography and get better every day? By a continual devotion to their craft. How do we grow in the Lord and come to know and be more like Jesus every day? By a continual devotion to his word. Do do you see that? Now remember, there are 3,000 people and 12 apostles. Can you imagine some of the days and nights of teaching that they must have had there's probably days where they got into bed and thought, "I cannot do this again next day, Lord. This is it, too much." But they had the Holy Spirit. Now remember what were the what, or now what were the apostles teaching? What would they have taught these people? There was no gospels. There were no letters of Paul to other churches. Think about this: Paul wasn't even a Christian at this time. So what they taught was the Old Testament. Just as Pastor Dusty showed us last week how Peter used three different Old Testament texts to show that Christ was the Messiah, they taught that. They also taught what uh, Jesus said and did during his three years of ministry, and then they also taught what he said and taught them after his resurrection during the 40 days before he ascended to the right hand of the Father. These early Christians were hungry for the word of God as taught by the apostles. They, They could not get enough of it, and we shouldn't be surprised. When you're filled with the Spirit, a hunger for God's Word necessarily follows. I want to I compare two passages. Let's look at Ephesians 5. It says, And do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's look how similar this is to Colossians 3. Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you see how similar these passages are? The main difference is what was exchanged. exchanged, Paul exchanged, be filled with the Spirit in one, with let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in another. This shows the connection between being filled with God's Spirit and the studying of God's Word. Where the Spirit of God reigns, a love for God's Word reigns as well. The backbone of any healthy Christian life, of any healthy Christian church, is the sound teaching of the Word of God. You cannot know or please God if you are not in the word of God. Don't let anyone deceive you on this. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2 that like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, the scriptures, the teaching of the word of God, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Listen, if you don't know this, I'm going to tell you how we, where, what type of world we live in. We live in a non-reading, experienced, oriented culture. And many people are out there looking and searching for spiritual experiences rather than solid Bible exposition of God's Word. Nothing, nothing can replace sound Bible reading and teaching. It is absolutely necessary. Where the Spirit of God reigns, God's people continually devote themselves to the study of God's Word. Do we see that? All right, now let's turn to the second practice of the early church, the continual devotion to fellowship. We read in in verse 42, the second practice, and they devoted themselves to the fellowship. When we read fellowship here, what comes to our mind, right? We think of gathering of Christians over a meal or a Bible study, but this isn't the way the word fellowship is used here in this verse. This is talking about a spirit-empowered fellowship. This type of fellowship actually didn't even exist prior to Pentecost and the pouring out of the spirit. This word in Greek is translated to our English word, um, uh, that's translated to our English word for fellowship is koinonia. This is actually the first occurrence of this word in Scripture, the first occurrence of this word in the New Testament. And the root of this word means commonness. You may have heard that Greek in the New Testament that was written in was Koine Greek, and that's because it was the Greek that's spoken on the street. It was the Greek spoken by everyday people out on the street. It's a common Greek. So every time this word is used in the New Testament, it indicates some type of sharing. You're either sharing in something or sharing something with someone or sharing in something that someone else is experiencing. The emphasis of the word here in Acts is on personally contributing something or giving something away. And verses 44 and 45 make this clear. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as any had need. What an amazing picture, right, of the body of Christ. The simple phrase, they were together. It sounds so simple, but it's profound You can't do any fellowship if you are not together as brothers and sisters in Christ. In our world today, when everything is pulling us apart in different directions, we need to fight to be together as often as we can to encourage one another, to build one another up, to carry out God's will for the church. It is hard to function as the body of Christ if every time we come together, we're missing a hand or a leg. Now, when it says they had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all, I want to clear up a couple misconceptions that people fall into here. First, this doesn't mean they sold everything they owned, they still had personal belongings. Uh, It says in verse 46, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So people still had houses. Further on, and we'll get here in a few weeks, but in chapter 5 of Acts, the believers are selling everything that they had. And they're giving the, the proceeds to the apostles. And the apostles are distributing these proceeds to other believers who are in need so that no one lacked anything right and then a husband and a wife named Ananias and Sapphira sell uh, a field um, and they go and give the proceeds to the apostles but one thing they did was they lied and said they gave all of the money from the field that they sold but they actually held back some for themselves and here's what Peter said to Ananias while it remained unsold did it not remain your own and after it was sold was it not at your disposal So this was not a forced selling uh, uh, and giving of possessions. This is not as some have tried to make the case early communism because giving was done voluntarily and not compelled and people still had personal possessions. So what what was it then? This was spirit-empowered mutual generosity and sharing. This can only happen when one's heart has been changed by the Spirit and when one understands whose they are and who all their possessions belong to. We struggle with this understanding, right, in our world and in our church today. I know I do. I tend to forget all my, who all my possessions are from and what they are for In an age of entitlement, we start to believe that it was our own power and abilities that have earned all that we have. We start to think we deserve things. That's mine. That's not yours. Don't touch it. Go get your own. I earned this. What we fail to realize is that apart from God's grace, listen to this, in Christ, the only thing that we have ever earned in our lives is death through our sin. The Bible is clear on this. Deuteronomy says, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. John 3, uh, 27, John the Baptist says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Yet we boast as if we did not receive everything we have. We clutch it so tightly to our chests, right? Maybe it's pride, maybe it's fear. That God cannot provide maybe it's because in our hearts aren't filled with a passion for the glory and supremacy of Christ in all things maybe it's something else but what I do know is that Colossians 1 speaking of Jesus says for by him Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him. The skills and the abilities and the intelligence and the creativity that you have and all the wealth that it generates are all from God and are to be used for God and His glory. Romans 11 says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Not by coercion, not by force, but because we understand who God is and what he has done for us, there necessarily comes a bubbling up out of our hearts, hearts changed by the Spirit, a willful and joyful giving of all that we have and all that we are for the glory of God. We were bought with a price, and that price was Christ's life for ours. So let's glorify God with our bodies and with all that we have. In contrast to our use of the word fellowship today, fellowship in the early church cost something. It wasn't a sentimental feeling of oneness. It wasn't punching cookies in the social hall or being together even at the church. Fellowship comes through giving. If you come to church, if we come to church expecting for our um, needs to be met every time, we're going to leave disillusioned. And without the experience of true fellowship, because it comes through giving of ourselves to each other. And fellowship is also a work of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians. He says, the grace of of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship. The word here used for fellowship of the Spirit is koinonia. It's a giving. It's the same one we see in our verse this morning. The fellowship, the koinonia of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And additionally, as we draw closer in fellowship with God the Father, we'll draw closer in koinonia to one another. First John, John writes this, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Perhaps maybe the most beautiful expression of this type of fellowship in all of Scripture is found in 2 Corinthians 8. Paul is taking up a collection from different churches that he has planted for the church in Jerusalem. At this time, the church in Jerusalem is experiencing an extreme famine. And so Paul's writing to the Corinthians to encourage them to give generously for the church in Jerusalem. And listen to what he says to them. How, how and why would they ever do this? Well, verse 5 gives us the answer. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. You see that? And if I may, I want to point to what comes out of this giving In chapter 9, he who supplies seed, God, to the sower, us, and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness, not the harvest of your bank account. You will be enriched in every way. Why? To be generous in every way, which through us will produce things thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval, the people who are receiving this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Give generously. God gets glorified, right? You see it right here in 8 and 9. That's what koinonia is. That is true fellowship. That is what we're talking about here. If you want to have fellowship in the church today, we must be givers. Givers to the glory of God our Father. Where the Spirit of God reigns in the church, they will be devoted to his word and to one another in sacrificial fellowship. Number three, they continually devoted themselves to worship. Under this heading falls breaking of bread and prayers in verse 42. The breaking of bread here most likely means communion or the Lord's Supper. And we know this because this term, breaking of bread, falls between two spiritually charged words of uh, fellowship and prayers. And they're terms loaded with meaning for the Christian life and Christian practice. And then also in verse 46, there is a purposeful distinction between the breaking of bread and receiving their food. So when we read Breaking of Bread, we're thinking of communion. And what we think about when we, when we uh, or what their practice was then, was after they would get together and eat, they would take the leftover food and they would celebrate communion. That was the practice in the early church. This was significant for the church then and for us now. This is because the church knew the importance, they knew the significance of continually remembering and elevating the death of Christ in their hearts and their minds. They continually devoted themselves to this. And by doing so, they made sure, they made sure that Christ and his atoning work were ever before them. It's instructive for us, right? Continually bringing the work of Christ to our minds in joyful contemplation will draw us deeper and deeper into relationship with him. We must meditate on that, what he's done for us every day. And the second way they worshiped here was through prayer. These prayers that they offered to God were most likely offered in their homes and in the temple. I think a lot of times we think that Christ came, we, the early church became Christians, and their life looked totally different. They probably woke up and said, well, I'm going to go to the temple today, because that's what I always did, and it just... Uh, in the temple, I'm not gonna, it's going to be Judaism plus Jesus now. He's fulfilled it, but I'm going to still maintain these practices. So there are probably specific prayers that they had learned. Maybe the uh, Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught his disciples or other prayers they were taught after they came to Christ. Or they could have been Jewish prayers they knew, but now those prayers had been fulfilled in Christ. Think about this. How cool is this? They're offering old prayers to God through the new lens of Jesus. That's pretty awesome. When the Holy Spirit is reigning in our hearts, we, the church, naturally move towards God in worship. Lastly, the overflow of devotion to God is evangelism. As the word went out, awe came upon every soul. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, this awe that came upon them was not just because of the wonders and the signs being done uh, by the apostles, but because of everything that was happening then, the teaching, The koinonia fellowship, the communion, the prayers, the glad and generous hearts, all pointed to the reality of the risen Christ and the greatness of God in his redemption. The word awe here, well I think when we think about this, we typically think of fear and terror, but it was a sense of reverence and respect coupled with astonishment and amazement at what God has done for them. This only happens when we see our frail and fragile sinful selves standing before the presence of the almighty God and his perfection and holiness. Think of Isaiah seeing the holiness of God in Isaiah 6, 5, right? When he cried, woe is me for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. Too often we have lost the sense of the holiness of God. And when we lose that, we lose awe. What could be better for the church today than to regain a sense of awe of standing before our holy God joined with the sobering sense of our downright sinfulness. We don't deserve to stand in his presence, yet we do because of Jesus. This sense of awe and devotion to God's word, fellowship, and worship overflowed into the community around them. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Glad and generous hearts here can be translated to unaffected joy. A joy like that is contagious, right? You ever been around people that are that joyful? Like, you start to smile and be happy too, or annoyed. But either way, people want it, right? People want it. And imagine the revival that would happen in our lives and communities if we lived daily with an overflowing sense of joy in Christ. That's the type of joy that makes you have to tell someone about it, right? That's the type of joy that is not complete until you fully express your joy, letting others know about Jesus. You can't keep it inside because you're squelching your joy. Verse 46 and 47 are a picture of early church worship. It's also a picture of a church where the Holy Spirit reigns. So today we need to ask ourselves, are we continually devoting ourselves to God's word, to sacrificial fellowship, to worship and evangelism? If not, why not? And what steps do we need to take to move towards this end? One step that's essential for all of us to, to take is to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's to be filled and, uh, with the Holy Spirit. We've talked a lot about the fact that we have the Spirit and that the Spirit empowers us to carry out God's will. That's great. That's true. But we've never talked about how to be filled or guided and directed by the Spirit. The reality is many Christians don't understand the Holy Spirit or how to experience Him in their daily lives. Yet God has given us the Spirit so we can experience intimacy with Him and enjoy all that God has for us. So why are many Christians not satisfied in their experience with God? It's because we fail to depend on the Spirit. People who trust in their own efforts and strength to live the Christian life will experience failure and frustration. That's a fact. So how do we develop a lifestyle depending on the Spirit? We do it by walking in the Spirit. And that's a moment-by-moment lifestyle. It's a learning to depend on the Holy Spirit for His abundant resources as a way of life. And as we walk in the Spirit, we have ability to live a life pleasing to God. So how's this done? Well, first, it's through faith. Trust in God and His promise is the only way that we can live by the Spirit. What does it look like in practice? It looks like every morning when you wake up, you get on your knees and you say, Lord, show me the areas of my life that I have not surrendered to your control. It then looks like asking him to strengthen you to trust him in faith, to surrender controls of those areas to him daily, multiple times a day. Another daily practice is as you go throughout your day to confess sin when it comes to your mind, the moment you become aware of it, Agree with God that it is wrong, that it is sin, and thank Him for His forgiveness. But your confession is not complete without repentance. It requires that we ask God to help us change our attitude and the direction of our lives. We could be doing that 100, 200, some of us thousands of times a day. The essence of the Christian life is, not what, it is what God does through us, not what we do for God. Christ's life is reproduced in the believer, in us, by the power of the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Holy Spirit means to be guided and directed and empowered by Him. And by faith, we experience God's power through the Spirit. Ephesians says, I pray that out of His glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So, there's three important questions we need to ask ourselves. One, am I ready to surrender Control of my life to our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you ready to do that? Two, am I ready now to confess my sins? Sin grieves God's spirit. But God, in His love, has forgiven us of all our sins, past, present, and future, because Christ has died for you. And then three, do I sincerely desire to be directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit? By faith, Listen to this. You can claim the fullness of the Spirit according to God's command and promise. God commands us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5. Be filled with the Spirit. God promises He will always answer when we pray according to His will. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he's commanding us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have what we have asked of him. We're commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. May we be a people who surrender control of our lives to the Holy Spirit and enjoy all that God has for us and all that he will do in and through us. You see that? Will you stand with me as I pray? Father, help us to surrender control of our lives to the power of the Holy Spirit individually so that corporately we continue to grow as a people and as a church that is empowered and guided and directed by the Spirit to do your will. Help us to be a people satisfied in you, a people of confession and repentance, a people hungry for your word, for sacrificial fellowship and worship, and may that overflow to those around us so that all may come to know you, Jesus, as the Lord and Savior. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.